This, I mean, this whole antitrust thing, wow, what a wild ride. <laughs> All uh, six, seven hours of it. When you left last night, you had you left it running, right? And I was thinking, okay, I'll watch this for a bit. A bit? The, this thing, the timestamp for this event, six hours and 36 minutes. They're making Lou later look short. <laughs> oh, oh, baby. And I'm sitting there watching their posture as they're getting grilled, thinking, how can you sit like that? Particularly uh, Pachai, who's sitting with great posture for five hours. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Anyways, obviously, this thing was uh, very painful to watch. Painful for uh, a billion different reasons. See how I use billion? Because it's a bunch of billionaires up there. It was painful for a billion different reasons. It's so bizarre, first off, to see all these billionaires in the same space. And you were talking earlier. You said, I wonder if they, uh, after it's all said and done, if they have a separate call where they can just chat about what just took place. Because <laughs> really, who are they going to share this experience with? Having been grilled by all these Congress people, mm -hmm. politicians, whatever it happens to be. Anyway, so I want to do a breakdown of this. I know you people in the world do not want to watch six hours and 36 minutes. It's very difficult to do it. So I watched, I would say, an hour and a half. And then this morning I read a bunch of different recaps mm -hmm. that is attempted to consolidate what took place. The basic premise here is that a number of officials sat in a, in a room with a bunch of billionaires from the biggest tech companies on the other end of what looks like, a, well, it's Cisco, WebEx, conference call. And they aimed to... Uh, they aimed to uncover information, to interrogate these billionaires as to whether or not their activities are anti-competition. Mm -hmm. If they are in some way too powerful and stifling the marketplace through, through a number of different means in each criticism that was directed at each billionaire and each company was specific to the behaviors of that company, mm -hmm. but always around sort of similar subject matter of, you got a little bit too much control over here, don't you? Why are you monopolizing everything? Exactly. Why are you doing so well? Yeah. And so it's funny to see these guys who are always at the keynote event telling you how well they're doing. It's funny to have them, have them come on here and talk about, we're not doing that well. <laughs> they come on here and say, we have tons of competitors. Tim Cook had to put Huawei in his mouth. He had to put... Uh, Samsung, who he called Samsung. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I noticed that too. <laughs> oh man! So like anyway, it's a, tool. it's a, it's definitely a role reversal. So you have Zuckerberg from Facebook, Tim Cook from Apple, uh, Bezos obviously from Amazon, and uh, Sundar Pichai from Google. And uh, look, this is I understand people who were frustrated at the questioning. I get it. That's what I saw a lot of on Twitter. People were saying. These guys have no clue what they're asking about, talking about, and there's a disconnect. And where are the where's the tech expert that can really grill these guys? Because a lot of their questions were these case studies and like one-off events, specific. and and it was just a little bit painful to have to watch. I mean, at one point, Zuckerberg corrects one of one of these officials on uh, an event that actually took place on Twitter, Twitter not Facebook. Yeah. And so there's, it's going to be painful. There's going to be some pain associated with it. But it is a topic 
that require some attention because these are tremendously powerful companies and and we we do need to a certain extent I mean, just at least analyze at least have some awareness over these activities how they operate and and the benefits and the drawbacks and the consequences of these things so we're going to kick it off with uh i guess we'll do facebook zuckerberg was taking heat the majority of the heat he took was over the acquisition of instagram which is uh, seems like a lifetime ago this was an act acquisition that at the time was approved by the ftc however these officials said we don't care if the FT what the ftc said we're looking at this now we got fresh eyeballs we saw what you're doing over here he got a few more users since that acquisition was approved and we want to look at it right now and zuckerberg very uncomfortably in his uh, his little webcam setup here goes on to say, uh, essentially defend himself and say Instagram wouldn't have been Instagram without Facebook. Mm -hmm. His defense is there were many different photo sharing apps at the time and, and, and basically suggesting that whoever Facebook bought at that time could have become the Instagram of today, which of course you and I know, well, there's a little bit of finesse to that answer because Instagram, there was some legs there. Mm -hmm. Instagram had some legs. And then they go in, they uncover some emails where he says Instagram could be a problem for us. He says, you know, this kind of, and this the language. These these people, they love that type of language. They go, that sounds anti-competitive. You telling me you didn't want to compete? You just wanted to acquire? And of course, uh, in retrospect, the billion bucks that they spent on Instagram looks like a steal of a deal mm -hmm. in 2020 because Instagram, I mean, you could argue that's the hot property even more so than Facebook in some ways amongst certain demographics. And they seem to be investing a lot as far as features are concerned on Instagram. They put, you know, this guy right here, Zuckerberg, put a lot of attention on Instagram. Must be worth something. I don't know. Must have been a big deal. So they say you neutralize competitors by acquiring them. That's where we step in. That's anti-competitive. And there's, there's a point to be made there. Now, of course, on a flip side, I got to present the flip side. Yeah, maybe they could have squashed Instagram in other ways. Maybe Facebook photos. Now, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I'm not saying it would have happened, could have uh, used its vast reach and tremendous funding to go out and truly disrupt Instagram and, and uh, put features that people wanted. It's not impossible. And now that Facebook does have Instagram, so many things have changed about Instagram that only Facebook could do. The advertising model as a whole, Facebook plug-in piece to it, uh, the, the the speed at which they could put teams on new features mm -hmm. and so forth. So you have to ask yourself, and this is going to be a common thread as we move between the analysis of each of these complaints against each one of these CEOs, you have to ask yourself two things. Have they done something that is potentially anti-competitive? But then as well, who can compete? And that kind of proves the point of the anti-competitive nature there's the acquisition piece, which is kind of like a sledgehammer it's like a buyout to, to, to competition. But then there's the other piece, which is the intellectual component. Who The things they are doing are so sophisticated and so outside the spectrum of a traditional business by which these anti-competition laws may work very well. Who's the other Google is what I'm trying to say here. If tomorrow they say, Google, slow down, it's too much of the web. You have too much information. We need to distribute this thing. We need to break you into 15 different companies. Could these 15 different companies even do what Google's doing independently? 
on their own. There's so many plugins and tie-ins and all the rest of it. <laughs> you bring up DuckDuckGo browser. People oh, yeah. get mad. People it's get coming. mad when when you chuckle at the alternatives, but it's fair to chuckle because of market share. Like I understand that there are people who are enthusiastic about the other alternatives, but you have to understand your your niche at that point. Google goes beyond the search engine. Google goes into the into the smartphone operating system. They go into your email. It never ends. Willie do bringing up every search engine that nobody uses. But of course, in the in the uh, interrogation, Sundar has to say, "Oh, people they web search elsewhere. It's a yeah. small Google. Are you kidding me?" Google's a small-time small gig. Time. Yeah, we, yeah, we're still, uh, we keep we kept the garage from the early days. So anyways, uh, Zuckerberg gets nailed on the Instagram thing. The emails come out. He gets uncomfortable. Uh, Sistrom, Kevin Sistrom, the, the founder of Instagram, hasn't had the nicest things to say about Zuckerberg. And, and so maybe they keep hammering away at this one particular thing. And, and you may be asking as a, as a viewer, well, what ends up happening well, they're discuss discussing the potential, and I'm not saying this will happen, but they're discussing the potential to break off Instagram as a separate company. Yeah. That's what's on the table. Big deals, big-time stuff. Now, in the case of Apple, almost everything was centered around uh, the, uh, the App Store because the App Store is a place in which all in-app purchases result in a 30% cut for Apple and where all apps that are approved to be in the App Store have to be approved by Apple. And there is a little bit of nuance involved in that where there, there are uh, um, accusations being cast that Apple treats competitive apps to its own in-house stock apps that it treats them unfairly. Mm. That's the word. And I've actually got an article here uh, in uh, relating to Telegram. I don't know if you're familiar with Telegram messaging app and you might have to go over a few tabs to bring it up, but this this is actually an antitrust complaint in the EU that that's criticizing Apple's restrictions and fees over competing apps specifically. So, of course, Apple has a messaging product and you come in with the alternative messaging product, well, you're going to take away from their messaging product. So, hey, Apple, what are your rules around this? And should you be the only governing body over what can be published within the App Store? Now, Tim Cook, his defense, when we started the App Store, we had 500 apps. Today, we have 1.5 million or whatever the number was attempting to, to cast this image that they're uh, approving everything that comes through the door. Well, they're not. They're not. A lot of stuff gets kicked out and there have been disputes from companies that say, hey, this 30% cut is 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 unfair and, and apple then goes and makes the 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 uh counter argument that hey you're reaching nobody without this we're right. doing half the half the gig here we built the infrastructure we built the whole thing so you have the both sides represented in this particular in this particular complaint uh which telegram which has more than 400 million users said apple must allow users to have the opportunity of downloading software outside of the app store they want the ability for the App Store not to be the only way in which you install software on your smartphone. It's an interesting thought, isn't it, Will? Hmm. Because if you look back at the older operating systems we used, it, the source of your software could be anywhere. Yeah, it was like the Wild West. You could you can download an application. Now, there are drawbacks to that. You can download some pretty nefarious stuff. Well, you can do that sometimes in the App Store as well when they miss something. But there was no cut. Microsoft didn't get a cut when you downloaded a .exe. Mm -hmm. 
But imagine if they did. Now, this number, a lot of people may not be aware, it's an enormous number, what this equates to. Apple's App Store fees across the world are estimated to generate more than $1 billion for the company each month. Mm. That, that's, that's, that's some big-time numbers oh, each, yeah. each month. I mean, that's not even hardware. That's just on the installed base. In its complaint, Telegram took issue with Apple's argument that the App Store commission keeps it running. So, so Apple says, we need this App Store commission. That's how we keep the App Store running. But then Telegram goes on to say in their complaint, well, no, we run uh, this, this type of thing. We run servers and we have users and they estimate that the, that the running of the App Store probably costs somewhere in the neighborhood of tens of millions. Tens of millions. So, so, so we're looking at some profit here, to be clear. Now, hey, that's up to Apple. They're out there competing themselves. But it's an interesting, it's an interesting thought process. What should that number be? What is healthy for competition? And how should Apple treat competing software that shows up in the App Store? And what are their, where should they be held? Who can up, who, who can even get a word in? Who can say outside of a specific court case where a company's successful enough to take them to court where they've got the, the money to do so? Who can say, hey, you denied my app and there's nothing wrong with my app? You just didn't like it because, and they can do that, right? Of course they can. They're they're pr private company. So that's uh, most of what Apple's being accused of has to do with the App Store, not the hardware business. Google, on the other hand, well, I've got another example here of an EU antitrust where the Fitbit deal is is facing a probe, and of course Google acquired Fitbit, two point one billion increasing its footprint. This kind of s smells like the Instagram acquisition where the, you have these enormous, well, in Fitbit's case, it's the data. You have this yep. enormous enormous data set of users that Google gets to come in and acquire for $2.1 billion. And just like that, hit that multiplier button and God knows what they can do with this information. But Google was also being attacked for, you remember the genius thing where the the rap genius where they would have the lyrics oh, right, yeah. on, on the website and then Google started to publish those lyrics right in the search results so you wouldn't have to visit their site. Mm -hmm. Now, Sundar had to actually come up with a defense for that because uh, the, they, the, the company Genius, they actually embedded a secret code inside of those lyrics so that they could prove that Google wasn't deriving those lyrics from elsewhere, that they were just sweeping the site and then publishing that there. They, they had a similar accusation about Yelp with Yelp reviews. Google is your highway on the internet. And if they want to stick a sign in your way and that sign stops you from having to make a turn to get that information and bring that value to somebody else, they can do it and no one can stop them. Mm -hmm. And this is where this power thing comes in. And this is where this analysis comes in. So Google's got a ton of potential avenues for attack when it comes to the anti-competitive conversation, M maybe the most. However, Politico.com thinks Amazon ha will have the most to lose from this particular showdown. Bezos, the last billionaire of the group that was on display. And by the way, I think he may have had the best background with the, at least he has some objects back there and some wood furniture 
because I have to say, I really expected more out of Tim Cooks. He just had, it looked like a prison uh, interview interrogation, police department interrogation, frumpy plants, and just some wall panels. Uh, Sundar, it, it's it's between Sundar and Jeff for the nicest background in uh, in my estimation here. Zuckerberg was a little too close to the camera lens as he normally is. He uh, Zuckerberg wins the resolution battle, though I think he was the clearest yeah. of the bunch, whether that's a good thing or not, depending on uh, where how you want to analyze this type of setup. But anyways, uh, the reason that many think that Amazon has the most to lose is because of the effect that Amazon can have in a tangible way on physical small business and retail. And retail, my goodness, well, retail is under attack for, for a number of reasons. And this lockdown has really expedited that process. For And it's the reason Amazon stock is just just to the moon. Yeah. The brick and mortar. Is just, the brick and mortar is a disaster uptight. right now. And no one is even trying to dispute it. And the question is how much of that disaster has to do with Amazon and our ability to, to get things elsewhere. In the early days of Amazon, there's a lot of talk around anti-competitive behavior in the pricing of books, so much so that there was an actual case made about it with the uh, Apple's. There was discussions going on when Apple was doing their bookstore, and a lot of it came out in public. But the word was that that Amazon was was selling books below cost in order to completely cripple companies that had higher higher expenditure and smaller bank accounts that they could do that for a while to build in the habit for you that you would always go to Amazon in the future and they'd get their profits back later and famously they didn't even turn profits for a tremendous amount of time mm -hmm. and so he's asked questions specifically hey do you sell Amazon Echo at a loss and he says no not at a loss only when it's on sale and then you're like mm, when it's on sale you control when it goes on sale right so you can sell things at a loss and look I feel I have to say something right now. Okay. I'm a fan of these companies. I really don't know what we would do if people weren't out there solving these enormous problems. And one thing that this uh, lockdown has really exposed is how fragile our world is. When the message came out, hey, you're going to have to stay home, what did we all lean on? Technology. Yes. We all said... Well, the only way to interact is going to be through the internet. The only way to participate in any type of work is going to be web conference. The only way to go to school is going to be Zoom. The only way to get my toilet paper is going to be Amazon. And of course, Amazon increasingly into the food and all the rest of it. No one else had the infrastructure to deliver the thing. Are they too powerful? Yes. Why are they too powerful? Because what they're doing is super hard. Mm-hmm. It's super hard. To, what are what are what are these officials going to do? Are they going to go head over to Walmart? Are they going to force engineers from Amazon to work at Walmart so they can improve their services so they can deliver things faster and essentially do This is this is crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. Who's the other Google? Who's the other Amazon? Who's the other Facebook? Are they too powerful? Absolutely. Do we have any other options? Unfortunately, no. Not easy not ones. Yet. Not easy solutions to this stuff. Yeah. So you want to break them up and bust them up. Do services for people get better? Man, I don't know. I don't know. But I do understand the consequence of this. You let them keep getting more powerful, and who knows what they do with it, Will. 
You let this thing keep going unbridled. And then what do the prices look like? Who gets to call the shots? They can get they can they can they can get to a scale we've never seen before, as far as a retailer is concerned. Mm-hmm. When he said the everything store, and that sounds really exciting, maybe the long term everything store is kind of scary. Yeah. Well, maybe when the happen. when the everything store turns into the only store, that could be a problem. But of course, in his defense, he referenced a number of other big retailers, and he also referenced how small Amazon actually is compared to the entire retail footprint. So there's no easy thing going on here. I'm just attempting to break down exactly what's going on. I don't want a world without Amazon or Google or Apple or Facebook. I don't use Facebook that much, but <laughs> Instagram's a decent app. But you, you understand what I'm saying is, yeah, yeah. is these are services that people do derive tremendous value from. Google, it's crazy. I, I've thought about this before, trying to figure out what the most uh, useful or important applications are. Prior to Gmail, whatever people were doing with email, email nightmare, and and prior to Maps, what people were doing for navigation, mm-hmm. it's it's hard. You just take it for granted. You assume that there's a, plenty of other amazing options, and it's just, uh, you know, it's tough. It's, oh, yeah. it's a really tough thing to figure out, and I don't know what they're going to do here. I don't know how they're going to manage it, and unfortunately, it appears that the right questions and the right people are missing to solve these complicated problems yeah. because they're probably working for these companies and not working for the government. What what do they get out of it right now? Like these, They have these hearings, but it's like it doesn't seem like things are changing. Yeah, well, like I said, they can make threats and they can continue this investigation and interrogation and the potential does exist to disrupt these businesses, but it does seem somewhat unlikely or at least somewhat difficult to figure out how that would happen in any kind of productive way for anyone involved, whether it's the public, the government, or these companies. It's Tech is its whole own thing. It's too late is what it is. Maybe they could have done this. Maybe had this happened a decade ago in the early stages of this thing where they said, oh, we see this is potential to get really big and we want to have five or six versions of these things. But now we're so dependent and reliant on it. Google is a utility. Amazon is a utility. It does save us in all kinds of circumstances. And now you want to talk about it? Now you want to disrupt these services that we all depend on? I mean, all these people probably have iPhones. Of course they do. They're they're all running. They're all relying on the services. It's funny. uh, This came to my mind when I was watching it. All these elected officials, well, these these are Congress people, but they're all part of, they're part of parties as well that rely on nominations and political ad spend has moved in a tremendous way towards the web, buying Facebook ads, Google ads, and all the rest. They're customers too. Yeah. How weird is that? They're playing the game. How weird is that? Did they have a relationship outside of this interrogation that they have a reliance on these companies like regular citizens do for the services they need to survive in a modern environment? Yeah. Wild times. Anyway, speaking of that, why don't we lighten the mood Bezos is under attack, so he does exactly what you would do if you were being criticized for being too powerful. You buy your 
next door neighbor's house. To add to your inventory of homes that you own, a $10 million house in a nearby property to one of his properties in Beverly Hills. He's got enormous properties in D.C., Seattle, where he's also famously bought up his neighbors because when you're really, really rich, that's what you start doing. You I don't know. Neighborhoods? Yeah, I don't know if you knew that. Not yet, no. Yeah, you didn't. But soon. For you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, back in April, Bezos paid a record $165 million for David Geffen's Jack Warner estate 10-acre compound in Beverly Hills. Now he's added the neighboring property to that property at 10 million bucks. Say Some say it may be a home office, a guest house, or maybe he'll just knock it down to have a bigger yard. Who really knows? When you have that much money, you run out of things to do with it. And uh, again, it's just a funny uh, juxtaposition, this news story to the last one. We're really not doing that well. Okay, we're kind of doing all right. <laughs> Uh, in 2014, Bezos paid $13 million for a rundown home next door to his uh, former Beverly Hills compound. Uh, those, those other properties were actually obtained by Mackenzie Scott, of course, his ex. She accumulated some of that property as well. He is the planet's richest human. Uh, I mean, on any given day, depending on what's going on in the stock market. In the late 90s, he acquired several properties around his Seattle estate. And he also owns four apartments in the same Art Deco style Manhattan building. Three of them acquired from music executive Tommy Matola. So he's got to have four apartments in the same building in Manhattan as well. Of course. Uh, I guess, you know what it is, Will. At some point, you get a little bit rich and you start to uh, acquire uh, cars, let's say. You start to collect cars. And then you get stupid, enormous, ridiculous. Well, maybe maybe, maybe not stupid. I mean, it's not stupid. I mean stupid rich in the sense that you have to start acquiring slightly more unusual things like your neighbor's property. Yes. That's what you do. You're but uh, what else are you going to do? Yeah. What else are you going to do? I guess you could do what his wife, his ex-wife did and give a lot Charity. of it away. Although I'm pretty sure he gives a lot of it away too. But uh, there you go. 10 million on the neighbor's house. Willie Do's going to start uh, running that program sometime soon. Speaking of billions of dollars, TikTok. Wow. This escalated quickly. They remember a couple days ago, they were going to give $200 million to creators. Hmm. They got a couple of news stories out of it. We talked about it. And then they said, no, 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 that wasn't enough press. We're going to go for 2 billion, not 200 million. And I think there was even a stopgap where they talked about maybe half, maybe it was 1 billion, but they keep increasing this number. I think TikTok has realized if they put out these stories, their creators are going to stick around. And if their creators stick around, then the public is going to demand that those apps stick around and they're going to be more upset if something happens to the app. Mm -hmm. So our last story talked about potentially moving certain assets, maybe the company entirely to the United States as one method for alleviating some of the pressure coming from the U S government and other governments globally. But then the other piece of the pie is if there's any fear from creators that the app may be unstable or not a place to make a long-term investment, then it won't matter what happens with the government because the communities will move on their own in the absence of the content that they're looking for and the creators that they came to follow and popularize. Hmm. So TikTok appears to realize this is the case and they are offering up big money now to creators globally, not just in the U.S., to hang around on the platform. TikTok is planning to support the next generation of talent on its platform, $2 billion Uh, creator fund 
TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube all want high-profile creatives with millions of fans. Yeah, I wonder why. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, TikTok's new fund is designed to help influencers generate revenue on its platform. You're going to have to submit an application, as we referenced in the past, but that was only in the ter in terms of U.S. creators. This is now a global situation. In Europe, TikTok will give creators $70 million over the next year and $300 million over the next three years. And in the U.S., $1 billion over the next three years and then double that globally. I don't know how it will be distributed elsewhere in smaller places, but I think this makes a lot of sense. I think this is exactly what they should be doing. If you have creator commitment and, and they're in a particular geography that could be a tumultuous place for you to operate, they're going to go to bat for you. They're going to keep publishing. They may even write petitions and sign petitions. They may even talk to those guys behind the wooden pedestals and say, you can't ban this app. This is an American success story. See me? I'm an American creator. Check out my business. I got 17 employees because I got a, they cut me a check, and now I'm creating content for the world. An American export. Media, baby. The media business. I don't know. Anyway, point being, TikTok's going to invest in its creators, and I think it's a good move in order to uh, ease, ease some of the apprehension around remaining on TikTok. It's a, it's a funny way how that works, you know? You got guys like Ninja, they say, I can't be over there. I can't be on TikTok. Where's my data going? But then at the same time, on the side, yeah, TikTok starts talking to some people directly and saying, uh, uh, look, check. I want you to check out this briefcase real quick. And, 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 and to be fair, for a lot of these people, they're trying to figure out what is my business? What do I do? Yeah. They're fresh to it. They're new to it. And they do have to figure something out long term mm -hmm. if they're going to do it professionally. And other platforms have done this very successfully, including the one that we're on here, including myself on YouTube. You start generating revenue. You can take it seriously. You can create more content more often, reliably, mm -hmm. without feeling like, oh, this is risky. Right. It's a key piece to business piece and other social Media platforms are catching up and figuring it out. Good content. It's going to cost some money. Mm -hmm. That's the bottom line. I mean, though a lot of people, a lot of people would dispute whether or not TikTok's got good content, <laughs> but that's up to them. That's up to them to decide. Huawei overtakes Samsung as the top handset maker in the world. How about this story, given everything that's going on with Huawei, as far as exports are concerned, this figure here is based almost entirely on the domestic Chinese market, which has rebounded sooner than the rest of the world because of the pandemic having having originated there and then spreading elsewhere later on, that uh, the domestic economy in, in China has bounced back a little bit faster. They opened up earlier. Yeah, they've, exactly. They're, 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 they're back to business to a certain extent. And this has allowed... Huawei, even having seen a pretty significant decline elsewhere in the world. Let's see here. Uh, yes, domestic sales rose by 8%, but Huawei's overseas shipments fell by 27%. So, and that's the area that could fall even further, most importantly because of losing the Play Store, you, losing Google Apps, which elsewhere in the world matter a lot. In China, don't matter a lot. They have all the domestic apps. They don't care uh, there's very little Google footprint in China, which was another thing that came up in the antitrust, because one of the one of the Congress people was uh, obsessed with the China component, mm -hmm. su suggesting that Google was more interested that any of these brands were sort of bowing to 
uh, Chinese requests and whatever else. Yeah. But anyways, CCP. Anyways, uh, so domestic sales went up a little bit. Now other companies like like Samsung posted a 30% drop overall because they had weak demand in markets like Brazil, the United States, and Europe. Those are huge, mm -hmm. huge markets, of course, and they, those markets have been crippled. People holding on to their pennies. They're not trying to buy flagship smartphones when there's so much uncertainty in the world. So that's kind of expected, but it's allowed Huawei to, to kind of slip into that spot. And it just showcases the scale of the Chinese market enormous marketplace that on the back of that alone and also potentially this is speculation but the power of patrioticness is, uh, that, yeah. is, that, is that a word um, anyway patriotism patriotism sure yeah we're that, gonna go with all of sense. because that that conversation started to come up as huawei was running into issues elsewhere in the world that and 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 we've uh, talked a lot about the slimmer market share for I mean Samsung has almost no footprint in China and even Apple n nothing in comparison to Huawei so you start this I mean people are watching the news in China they say everybody's uh boycotting Chinese products what happens within the domestic market that's your brand those are I mean the 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 facilities they're they're the local employer they're the you're going to support that brand in the face of this being presented with this type of conflict. Right. So you, you see this increase in domestic sales, not a, not a decrease. So it's, it's kind of a, there's a, so much interesting stuff going on right now with people's uh, um, mood around technology and how technology has now become a piece, a, pol a, 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 a political it's almost representative of your stance in India. It's something similar. It's representative of uh, your support for a particular agenda or a particular side of a conflict. It's very bizarre. Mm -hmm. This is really brand new in tech. It's happened elsewhere in other products, product segments. But in tech, I've been in this now for 10 years, covering it here on YouTube in one way or another. And it's just, it's hotter right now that, subject that topic the 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 patriotic component the loyalty the, the the loyalty i mean i don't know if we're gonna stay here but i don't it's, it's also hard to see a way out mm. wow uh, countries attempting to to own more of the process of the manufacturing of these devices own have more sovereignty over their networks and their 5g uh, implementation and it's just anyway Huawei is definitely not done. They may be done in some places, but in China, they are not done. That's important to know. Now, one place where they may be done is Brazil, but only if Brazil is willing to take the advice of the United States or make the decision on their own that they see some sort of an issue with Huawei uh, being being getting the contract for the cell networks there, the 5G networks there, which is that, that sort of started the whole thing. Who gets the 5G networks as far as the hardware is concerned? Now, Brazil, you may not know this, Will, but according to Reuters here, this particular article, your favorite news source, by the way, uh, that's a that's an inside thing that inside. nobody nobody remembers. Do you want to just let people know real quick what happened there? 
Well, I called it routers. <laughs> All right. I called it routers. Anyways. Anyways. Uh, Brazil does a lot of business with China, a lot of exports to China. Yeah. So there you have that relationship that could be in jeopardy. And they're right in the middle, again, uh, between the U.S. and China beef. It seems like so many countries are in the middle of that beef right now. Uh, the president or prime minister of Brazil, president, apparently has close ties to Trump and has an ear to Trump. Hey, what do you say? What do you think? However, the local economy depends on those exports to China. So when you're in between a rock and a hard place, as they like to say, mm -hmm. you want to appease one side. And now there's a new threat out there. What is the quote? Uh, Brazil may face consequences if it gives Huawei 5G access, and that's coming from a U.S. ambassador. So they're saying, don't do it. You're saying, hey, we, 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 we want to appease the United States here because there's the United States, obviously another big customer, and they have a, a bunch of money, $60 billion to boost overseas development financing, which that could go to Brazil if they are willing to play ball and abide by whatever suggestions the U.S. is putting out there. Now, they're not stating it as a requirement like that, but you have to know if you appease them on this one thing, there may be some benefit on the Favors. other side. Favors and all the rest of it. But then on the flip side, you got the threats coming from China. What did, uh, China, what did China say? A Huawei executive warned that Brazil could suffer years of delay in deploying a 5G telecom network at higher cost if it succumbs to mounting U.S. pressure to snub the Chinese equipment supplier. So Huawei picks up the phone. They say, okay, here's how this is going to hurt you this way. Or China picks up the phone and says, okay, you don't want to use our equipment in your networks. We're not going to buy whatever it is we're buying from you. So yeah. it's tough spot for Brazil. We'll see how that plays out. Uh, PUBG Mobile has decided to host user data in India amid possibility of getting banned. So there, uh, supposedly PUBG Mobile is one of these, uh, one of these apps that's under scrutiny, not banned yet, but under scrutiny in India for its treatment of data, user data, and the location of that user data. Where where is that information flowing to? And that was one of the issues with some of those early bans, the, the TikTok ban and some other massive bans. Uh, now, they, they, India didn't stop with the scrutiny in the app store. They went through their fine-tooth comb. They say, okay, PUBG, you're next. Well, they put them on the list for further inspection. And so PUBG's sitting there with a tremendous user base in India. Uh, Indian fans are telling me this is huge. It's the biggest game. Everybody plays it, all the rest of it. And so PUBG is trying to get out ahead of a potential ban saying, we're going to start making changes right now to how we're treating user data. So maybe we can uh, appease the Indian government and alleviate some of this scrutiny, some of this pressure. And so one way to do that is to keep, or at least say you're going to keep user data. I don't know how long that takes to transition those servers keep it local so they can't um, accuse you of doing anything nefarious with this data or where so that you, so that india can't say oh this is some kind of a national security threat which has been that's the words being thrown around when the data leaves the country no one really knows exactly how it's a security threat there's been talks of intellectual property 
But when it comes to user data in PUBG, you're sitting there thinking, what, what kind of national security threat is there? But you don't know the way it reaches into the device and what it's actually. Right, right. It's really hard to read these terms and to, to, to know where these, the extent of these permissions, let's say. The average person doesn't know. So anyways, PUBG is aiming to get out ahead of that. It's probably a good idea. And it showcases how many of these companies could be treating these scenarios. Uh, I think the story we talked about yesterday with TikTok, probably the best solution that's been pitched up until this point. Why don't you just let the U.S. investors own that piece and figure it out domestically? You're done. Look, here's the data. There's the servers. No problem. Nothing leaving. All your TikTok activity in the U.S. happens in the U.S. Yes. This could be a futuristic approach. U.S. users, data U.S. TikTok, uh, PUBG users in India, data India. Mm -hmm. So there's a way potentially to do this, but you're going to have to create some pretty, uh, some pretty robust structures and walls in order to prove to these governments that that data is staying where you say that it's staying. We'll see what happens with PUBG. Uh, hopefully it sticks around and obviously people enjoy it mm -hmm. in India. Hopefully they can find a way to make it work. But I'm sure some people are boycotting anyways because of the 10 cent piece and everything else. Xiaomi is working on something kind of interesting. These are earbuds that store inside of your smartphone. Now, this is super early. We're talking patent area. But it, however, if you scroll down, you get a nice little graphic here supplied, uh, courtesy of Let's Go Digital, which shows you how those earbuds may work in that. the top of the device. As you can see, the earpiece, so it looks like it's a two-piece structure with a little hinge on it. The earpiece connects to a longer, uh, a longer cylinder, which probably has the communication components in it for Bluetooth, and then a tiny little earpiece which pivots on a hinge after you pull it out and then flattens when you insert it into the phone, top part of the phone. This is going to be hard for people who are just listening and can't see the graphic to figure out, but essentially just it creates a really portable thing that once it's in your phone, you hardly notice it. Now, the cool part about this is that when it's in the phone, it actually can act as extra loudspeakers. Mm. It could be speakers uh, spitting out audio, regardless if it's in your ear or on your phone. Now, problems that could arise from this, obviously the hygiene component. These things are in your, in your pocket, in your phone. You got all the lint and whatever else going into the grills, which appear to be facing upwards, and then you, sh you shove those in your ears. Most of the uh, fully wireless earbuds, if not all, have some sort of a case to keep yes. them enclosed when you put them in your pocket. That wouldn't be the case here with this particular smartphone. But it is interesting nonetheless because how often does that thing occur where you need some headphones real quick and you don't have them on you? And in this case, they could be right there, ready to go in the phone. And they're charged. And they're charged. They're always charged. And they're charged off of the bigger battery that's yes. inside of the phone. So there would be some engineering difficulties with figuring out the right way to do this. But... It's interesting, nonetheless, to rethink some of this stuff. I'm not saying I'd be first in line to buy this, but I like to see these uh, new ideas, even if they're only executed in the form of patents. Mm -hmm. Sony PlayStation 5 reportedly have a shortened life cycle. Uh, now, don't misinterpret this like I misinterpreted the uh, lineup article from the, uh, from the Microsoft executive. It doesn't mean that the thing's not going to last as long it means that they're not going to produce it for as long as they have the previous versions 
you, you know consoles there are they stay around for a while six seven years mm -hmm. and and therefore the game development everything is predicated on like how long is this console going to be a thing it, it is a bit strange to me they hang around as long as they do considering how fast things move in other consumer electronics areas like smartphones or even pcs, PCs yeah. for that matter you get a new graphics card every five minutes and you've got to have this old console forever so they always come out and say it's next generation it's got everything and then sure enough it's only next generation for a short period of time so apparently even though sony expects this thing to be wildly popular they're expecting to ship 120 million playstation 5 units over the next five years which is actually double the number of xbox series x models that microsoft is planning to ship uh, some some figures estimate that sony may ship even more than that up to 170 million units we will have to remain and uh, uh, leave that uh, it remains to be seen is what i want to say what's actually going to happen but it does appear that there is a sort of a renewed interest in the at-home gaming mobile was grabbing everything for a while and then people got locked down and all of a sudden vr started to boom consoles started to boom video game spending started to boom so maybe they do move 170 million units but they claim that the life cycle for this particular model is going to be five years instead of the six or seven that the PS4, 3, and 2 all had. So I'm not sure why that's the case. Maybe they want to be more up to date with the consoles, do them more frequently. Maybe they make some good money off of it. Maybe the renewed interest in consoles means you can flip them more frequently and actually extract some cash from people. Uh, I'm sure there could be a number of reasons for why this is the case, but uh, it appears PlayStation 5 is a five-year console. It, but this, again, this is according to uh, the back-end supply chain in Taiwan. Well, maybe there could be like a spec bump. Yeah, Not exactly. Like the next generation, but just like upgraded specs. Maybe. Yeah. yeah, who knows what it means exactly? It's coming from the inside. They could be wrong. Maybe the thing is a hit and they're still selling good numbers five years in and they say, let's order up another two years worth. Right. And they've, well, they they have always done the slim versions and the yes. sort of incremental versions, but, or maybe will, it's just a recognition that things are moving quickly and it's time to upgrade the thing more frequently. Mm -hmm. Who knows? We'll find out. Uh, this is an interesting one. Sony puts out a video on their new TVs, X90H, XH90 series, and you, you'll you see something very interesting in this clip as you let it play. Well, the TVs look awesome, obviously. Sound and picture and harmony. It's all very beautiful. Uh, there, pause it right there. Ready for PlayStation 5. So this is interesting. Is this a designation that's going to be on multiple TVs? Is it only Sony TVs? Can other TV manufacturers apply to be what would be considered ready? Optimized. Optimized. Yeah. I remember in the early days of HD, they would say HD ready or right. 4K ready, I think came at some point after that. So ready for PlayStation 5 seems to indicate in the form of this video, this is my first exposure to it, 4K 120 FPS. That's pretty crazy for a large format display. Mm -hmm. Now there's a star there and your playhead is kind of uh, um, covering up the fine print. The star goes down to the fi fine print. Oh. 4K 120 FPS game HDMI input based on... How dare you, Will? How dare you? Based on internal testing conditions may differ in real-time usage. So they're, they're putting a little thing in there and then they also say it'll be available via future firmware update. So 
you're going to have to do this firmware update. You can probably buy the TV and then do the firmware update when the PS5 actually ships. And then the other one that I like, low input lag, 7.2 milliseconds. You never hear TV manufacturers talking about input lag, but it's this terrible thing that once you get a TV, you learn about real quick that some are just not good for gaming, mm -hmm. large format displays, because input lag, just to explain it real quick, you have an input on your controller, and by the time it shows up on the screen, there's so much processing happening to that HDMI signal that it takes a second for you to see it. This can just... This can be so frustrating in a game. It can make a game unplayable, to be honest, or at least give you an inability to compete because you're seeing things later. This is often why many gamers, game enthusiasts, even those on consoles, will opt for a computer monitor with an HDMI input right. for their console because computer mon monitors typically have less processing and therefore less lag because you got to use a mouse with it. Yes. 7.2 milliseconds is really good for a large format display, HDR display, 4K display this is i guess because of the 90 is this a 90 inch display i don't know how big it is but it's going to be a big one it's going to it's a it's a big screen tv anyways it's also going to have android tv built in and now it's got me all curious of what would be the optimal next generation console tv and did did sony potentially just nail it through the combination of high frame rate high resolution and low input lag I love it. I think it's lovely. I still like the game from the couch every so often. I want to relax every so often. Call me crazy. Well, it's normal. That's normal. Okay. I'm glad. Google is preparing their camera application 7.5 with some new features, including motion blur, audio zoom, and flash intensity. Now, this is obviously not official. This is somebody uh, peeking in as, as they do where, I mean, there's always places like XDA developers. This is on 9to5Google. For, no, for months now, we've been tracking the Pixel 4a as Google's next Android hardware release. Uh, earlier this month, our team uncovered direct mentions to Google also launching a Pixel 5 and Pixel 4a with no signs of a Pixel 5 XL. Now, they peeked in a little further. What, what exactly? It's, they've decompiled the latest version of an application that Google uploaded. And then they decompile the APK and look through it for interesting strings. Okay. Sifting. Yeah, sifting. Doesn't that sound super exciting? You could do that. Well, with your morning coffee, maybe a breakfast sandwich, and you start sifting mm. through some some APKs. Uh, they found a feature, a mysterious new string, which references lasagna. And lasagna is supposedly the code word for a new motion blur functionality, which aims to have the pixel camera behave more like a DSLR in the way that it treats moving images. So to create a more natural type of motion blur. Okay. Uh, from what we gather, motion blur looks to offer DSL-like quality to photos of moving targets, similar to how portrait mode simulates the bokeh effect. The given feature is still listed under the code name, but it will probably likely be available on all these next generation models that are also listed in here. Audio zoom is the other feature that they found and, and flash intensity. With audio zoom, we've seen this on other smartphones. This is almost like a shotgun effect to the microphone uh, behavior. When you're zooming into an image opt optically or digitally mm -hmm. in your camera app, it's able also to focus in the audio on whatever it is you're zooming at. And this stuff is, this has a, Depending on the way that you use it, it can have a magical 
kind of uh, output, but other times it's a little bit wonky. But they're gonna Google's gonna do their version of it and flash intensity. This is kind of weird because Google has moved far away from the fa uh, flash and pitched the night mode. Who needs a flash? Forget about a flash. Now they're gonna let you control the intensity of the flash instead of just on or off. Seems a bit odd, but for a company that's been so night mode. But I guess it's kind of cool because part of the reason the flash is unusable is because it only has one intensity level. Yeah. I use the flash for just like a lamp. Yeah, flashlight. Yeah. I know that's what most people do with it these days. But anyways, they're going to have, maybe you could have a dimmer nightlight or, oh, a you, you know, set the mood, Will, yeah. with your Pixel flash. Verizon is launching new LTE home internet service. The wireless company's internet service will be available in Georgia, Missouri, Tennessee, Virginia, and Kentucky. This is for rural areas. Everybody wants to figure out how to get the remaining people online and get some fast connections over there. And a wire is not always feasible. Elon wants to send up the Starlink satellites ruining people's photos. <laughs> and he's talking about some pretty hefty speeds. Uh, Verizon thinks they can just come in with the LTE 4G. Obviously, this is a precursor to what could eventually happen with 5G if you're comfy with it and, and uh, whether depending on where you land on the various conspiracy theories about what 5G is actually doing to you, Will. Hmm. It's, uh, there's some crazy stuff out there about 5G. Yeah, I don't want to read about it. No, you don't have to. But anyways, so for the time being, it's 4G LTE, and this is going to connect people in rural areas. They're going to get speeds of 25 to 50 megabits per second. I mean, it's not amazing, but it's likely a lot better than whatever they're getting right now. And they're going to, uh, it's going to cost $40 a month or between $40 and $60 a month to get that service. I like to see people getting connected in rural areas. Often they can, those places can be really cut off. You can have these huge dead zones mm -hmm. for, from a connectivity perspective. And it can be an isolating experience. You know, you, if you're a young person coming up in a rural situation and you can't even hop online reliably and interact with the rest of the world that way. I mean, depending on what you interact with, maybe it's a good thing. But in some cases, particularly with education, learning about things, uh, hopping onto uh, the various resources that are out there to become an expert in something. Yeah. If you got a slow connection, if you've ever experienced it, you just don't even want it. You're just done with it. Yeah, You're, rather not have it than a really slow connection. It can be very painful. So... This should be an upgrade for some people. But like I said, once the 5G starts rolling out wirelessly and those speeds can now mimic what you're getting on a wire, that's going to be a huge equalizer for those that aren't worried about whatever else 5G is supposedly doing to you. Uh, Halo, this is you. This is going to get you fired up. This is your segment of the show. This is uh, you, 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 when you're, you dream about Halo, you wake up in the morning, you check the Halo news. I'm sure you've already seen this. The uh, developers have responded to some of the criticism around Halo. I kind of feel bad for Halo. I don't know why. I just think, yeah, maybe you expected more, but holy moly, people just come after the developers directly. They go right at them on Twitter, oh, at the, yeah. the actual human being who's been working on the thing. A flat image, you suck. I guess I will hurt you. Why should I expect any different? People, people, no, that's the internet. That's just the way it goes. I mean, people come at me, they come at you, they come, anybody you can come at is getting, you know, getting hit up. Maybe, maybe we all need to ease up. I, I'm not really sure. But, anyways, this guy, 
uh, this developer on Twitter appears to be taking the criticism very seriously, and that's one area where criticism pays off. Is it can it can help guide you into making improvements as well. Now, like I told you before, I don't know how much they can do here. I feel like people are going to be dissatisfied because it's just so much weight to yeah. this title. So I, I just don't imagine how people are going to come out when the game ships, which is not that far from now, and say, okay, fine, we're happy now. That's, no, going, to no. be a, that's going to be a tough one, given where people's minds are right now. But Dan Cho Chosich, director of Halo Infinite, responded to a frustrated Twitter follower who was disappointed with the reveal. He said, I've been in your shoes. I know what it's like to have expectations built and feel let down, he said. I want you to know your voice matters and is heard. You're not falling on deaf ears. I always want to live up to the legacy that Bungie pioneered. I personally care a lot about honoring that. So, I mean, a very heartfelt. Oh, yeah. This guy definitely, I mean, take the words for what they are, <clears throat> but he doesn't come across as uh, flippant. He doesn't come across as dismissive. He comes across as really wanting to make a, a good product. Now, it could be damage control, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and, and suggest that this guy wants to make a good game. He wants to impress you as a gamer, mm. and he wants to do justice to the original as much as he can. Yeah. We'll see what they can do. They've, they've said, hey, that was early. That was an early thing. It's not the final product. Give us a chance. But I don't know. Sometimes this goes the way where people will be more sympathetic and say, well, I'm glad that I was heard. And then sometimes it goes the other way where they say, oh, you're listening to me? That means I have your attention. That means you're weak. That means I'm about to eat you alive mm -hmm. and hit you with everything. Ammunition. Yeah, so it's tough to know. But I, look, I think... Uh, I think they're definitely going to put out something better than the demo or the gameplay, uh, official gameplay preview. But will it be up to people's standards or is the standard an impossible standard given the fact that that uh, just where people are at with what they want in a Halo Infinite game, maybe? Mm. Call of Duty Warzone and Modern Warfare are going to be banning more cheaters. This is a whole new thing to me because I played a little bit of Warzone and everybody was talking about cheaters and cheating and... And and I felt like I hadn't heard about, I had just hadn't been uh, bombarded with cheating talk around an online title in such a long time, maybe ever. And so I did look into it a little bit to figure out exactly how people were cheating. I was curious about it. And you have people with uh, different texture packs and things and eliminating textures in the game and all kinds of ways in which people cheat. Now, uh, me, I... I was doing low tech cheating. Well, no, don't ban me. It wasn't, it's not actually cheating, but I remember when they first launched solo mode and they had the choppers in the game. I could just take a chopper and I loved it. I found it to be so much fun. I could take a chopper and then just, and then just fly around from, for most of the game. Well, you have to accumulate a couple things. You got to get a gas mask for one and uh, maybe a med kit. But, anyways, what you do. You can't have a gas mask and a med kit at the same time, can you? Anyway, you need the gas mask, and then you take the the chopper, and you're flying around until end game. And then when the game is ending and the, the the ring is shrinking so small, you just stay up directly above. And oftentimes, by the time you drop off, if you've got full health and a gas mask, and the other person was just in a gunfight, yeah. they're gonna die off quicker in the storm once it's completely consumed the place than you falling from the destroyed chopper. 
and I won two times like this on solo. Just because, you know, there's a natural thing where you want to just see where the boundaries are of the game. Yeah. Like, can you pull off these weird, these weird kind of things? Without and, technically cheating. And then shortly after, they got rid of the chopper in in solo mode. And I was, the fun was You're gone. Like, for, I quit. All that fun was gone. So, But anyways, this is deeper than that. People are running third-party software. And they're, I think they're really finding legit ways to cheat. Uh the studio has explained in a new Twitter post that it's going to ban even more players for manipulating the game. The full statement, which you can see above, explains that any bans are related to unauthorized manipulation of game data. All right, I wasn't doing that, Will. Uh, any third-party software being used to mod or hack can result in a ban. This includes aimbots, texture hacks, and trainers, all banned. And you should not attempt to modify any of the camouflage patterns you've obtained nor should you try to alter the memory on your system to get new gear. So they, they actually outlined, you do any of these things, you're banned. And I actually heard of a number of high-profile gamers with big audiences that were had been leaving the game because they were so upset about uh, hackers. Mm -hmm. So you got to believe that uh, Call of Duty wants to put an end to that to, to keep those individuals satisfied and also just to create a playing field that most people want to participate in because this stuff i mean you're running aimbot software wall hacks uh trainers texture hacks i've seen the texture hacks they're kind of crazy guys are they drive around on in a jeep and the jeep is invisible oh it's crazy stuff anyways uh because then they can target the person better because they don't certain textures are eliminated from the game don't go do any of this you might get your thing banned but anyways it's uh it's crazy what people get up to in their spare time. I can barely find the time to just turn the game on and have myself a half hour, Yeah. let alone get into the texture hacks. <laughs> uh, here's a cool device, a new device that allows users to control computers with their tongues. This looks sort of like a retainer, and then it has a module where your tongue goes, and of course there's a transmitter which is gonna wirelessly move those inputs to whatever device you're interacting with. Now, I first saw this, and I thought to myself, what the heck, what are you going to do with this? You only have a tiny little thing you can depress and move front and or up and down with your tongue. But then I thought to myself, man, you don't actually need that much movement to control an interface. Mm -hmm. Now, that interface may have to be custom made for your particular scenario, but if it was... You can just you could go through lists pretty effectively and select options just with an up and down movement. Now, of course, this this device here is targeted at people who can't use their other extremities, person who's paralyzed or something like this, or a person who is occupied controlling other things with their hands and wants an extra input. Mm. Uh, there's a demonstration video on the bottom here. It's called Inbrace. It's a thesis by Dorothy. I should get her name. Uh, it was Dorothy Klassen. And what you'll see here is she actually in installs the, I mean, it looks sort of like a mouth guard or a retainer into her mouth. And then there's an earpiece that wraps around a little wire that goes between the earpiece and the mouthpiece. And then this little ball slides up and down uh, on, the, on the inside of this mouth component. Then you can control that with your tongue. So I'm thinking up, down to scroll a list and then maybe depress it for a click mm -hmm. that's where my head is at but the demonstration here is actually a game it's a, a game of pong and maybe that's coming up in a in a short moment here yeah here we go and so she's able to control the 
Tong. Yeah, she called it Tong instead of Pong, obviously. And what what are those called? What, what would you call the character? It's not a character. It's a the little rectangle that hits the ball in traditional Pong. She can control it up and down with her tongue. So, anyways, it's going to be interesting uh, for people who have disabilities, and it's going to be interesting for. Uh, I don't know, just as an all, all alternate input method for special work tasks and also for physical therapy. For people who lose their ability to uh, use their tongue to talk or something like this and are retraining it, this could be a way to at least have some something interesting as a retraining software with a tongue-based input. Anyway, anyway, maybe you pair that with the Neuralink and I don't know, you're just lying down and... I don't know what you're doing, Will. Panasonic is going to boost energy density of its batteries for Tesla. They have a tremendous partnership. They claim it's going to be a 20% boost uh, on density. You know what this means, Will. Density means uh, longer range. Longer range, smaller footprint, uh, different an opportunity to re-engineer your vehicles. Bigger fires. Hey, man. <laughs> I'm just joking. Uh, yeah, potentially that too. Uh, it's a plan for the next five years. Uh, this fall, there's going to be a small increase of about 5% density coming to Tesla's Gigafactory in Nevada, which Panasonic actually operates. So it's an interesting partnership. They're in there making the batteries, but it's Tesla's factory. Uh, and then further down the line, I don't know if it's 10 years. I don't know if this report actually states when. Oh, in five years, yeah. So within five years, a 20% improvement. Within the next year, a 5% improvement. The best cells they currently make, the most dense cells, are actually actually only in the Model 3 and Model Y, the newer models. Once again, uh, lending to the conversation around how outdated the, the Model S and X are. And so those are, are, are likely to be on the, on the docket for an upgrade. But... The other piece is that they're going to move away from cobalt. They plan to have cobalt-free batteries in two to three years. Cobalt-free version would cut reliance on a costly and controversial component. Uh, it currently makes batteries stable, but pose, poses ethical issues given controversial labor conditions in the top producer, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So there's a push to move away from cobalt reliance. And that's another part of the future plans of Panasonic as we increase the density and the range of our future electric vehicles. Speaking of electric vehicles, you I don't know if you remember the Sony Vision S concept video, uh, vehicle that they showed off at CES last year. Sony said, we're just it's just a, a showcase. We're not making an electric vehicle. It's a proof of concept, that's all. And they're still saying that but now they're driving the car around and doing test runs. And you can actually see that in this video, Vision S arrived in Tokyo for development. And it looks sort of like a promo video. It looks like they're sort of excited about this car. Now, I always like to ask you, Will, what you think of the design of any new or competing electric car, because you're the guy that just knows. You just look at the internet and you just know things. And so now I have to have you weigh in on this one the Vision S, where does it stack up for you? I like it. I like the front of it. Wow. It looks very modern. Can you please um, contain your excitement? 
it's a yeah it's a great looking car now sony has a, quite a track record in consumer electronics obviously less so in the vehicle department would you take a chance on a sony car uh that's a tough decision uh, yeah I, I would, you I would be the out. early the uh the beta uh, early adopter beta tester yeah wow look alpha. at you will it's incredible you just bought yourself a car that's all it took <laughs> well anyway they still say they have no intentions of turning the concept into a production vehicle. But the Vision S has arrived in Tokyo for advancing our sensing and audio technologies. The prototype vehicle is also currently under development for public road testing this fiscal year. So it's unclear as to why, Will, you would be road testing a car that you have no plans on releasing. But one way to read this is that this car they have no plans of releasing but not any car maybe when they finally come out with it it'll just be called something else not the vision s and it'll have some small modifications and they'll say here is sony car z dash hx y7 like every other sony product name or are they partnering up like looking to partner up maybe with, uh or maybe they feel that there's some technologies they could learn about in the form of this car that could make it into other products. But that, it seems like a stretch to me. This looks like a really nicely finished product. Mm -hmm. It looks it even beyond what a typical prototype would be like. It looks ready for prime time. So I don't know. I'm going with what I said previously. If I have to guess, I can't imagine they're not interested in automobiles at all. I just think that a lot of the language right now is around this specific one and not electric vehicles in general mm. for Sony. Uh, also in electric vehicles, GMC is teasing its 1,000 horsepower electric Hummer truck and SUV. So they put out a new commercial with LeBron James. You remember the original happened at the Super Bowl and they put this silhouette in the recent commercial for the pickup truck, which that's an interesting shape. Mm-hmm. It's almost, it's like traditional truck plus cyber truck almost. And of course, it's just a silhouette. We can't read too much into it, but it should be really powerful. 1,000 horsepower. They promise a zero to 60 time in under three seconds. It's also the only electric truck you can get that's endorsed by LeBron James. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty important to note. Uh, they mentioned a couple of different modes, including... A, a type of crawl mode, I presume, which is called crab mode, just a guess, and, and an adrenaline mode, which that sounds like a fast mode. It also apparently will have super fast charging, next-gen super cruise, ultra-vision cameras, and it's going to have Ultium batteries, which is a partnership between GM and LG. So unlike Tesla, who's working with Panasonic, they're going to work with LG. And apparently those batteries are going to power both the Hummer EV as well as that really high-end Cadillac we were talking about, the Lyric. You remember that conversation about a premium Cadillac electric vehicle coming out? So anyway, they're trying to get you pumped about the Hummer EV. And, and I've told you before, the trucks, they appear to be the battleground for our electric future. Uh -huh. There's so many cool-looking trucks coming out, electric trucks to choose from. Uh, Hummer's saying theirs is the only super truck. I don't know what just, what quantifies a super truck, but they're going to do both. So they'll have the truck and the SUV. Apparently the truck isn't going to be as huge as some had, or the SUV isn't going to be as huge as some had originally imagined. Because if you recall, the previous Hummer was enormous. Yep. This one apparently only a little bit bigger than the Bronco. So 
maybe going after a different market. We'll see. And the last vehicle of the day and the last story of the day, we have the Lamborghini Ascenza SCV12, the most powerful track-ready Lambo, yet nothing electric about this one. You are looking at a V12 naturally aspirated engine. That thing is bum bubbling and rumbling and brrrr, you know, well, you know what I'm saying? So those still exist, probably not for not much longer, but this one got me going because the bodywork on this thing is just, well, it's absolutely bananas. All the, look at the angles and the downforce. This is, this is a track car. They say it creates more. A downforce than a where where is the quote here than a gt3 car it will produce more downforce than a gt3 car lamborghini claims that the front splitter and massive adjustable carbon fiber rear wing assist will be responsible for that massive downforce it's going to have 819 horsepower again generated the old-fashioned way by drinking fuel but uh, that's, I, I mean, you and I would have no idea what to do with something like that. But man, you pull up in something like that. That's, that's some, it's video game. That's a video game. That doesn't even look like yeah. real life. You know, it's going to be so uncomfortable in there. You're going to be so yeah. low to the ground. The engine is going no to suspension. be rattling your brain. However, when you pull up in this thing, every single person in the vicinity is going to look at you. Yeah. I'm I like, can hey, guarantee it. I don't even know if you so can drive cool. this thing on the road. Let me tell you something crazy about it. There's only going to be 40 of these. 40 customers will be able to pick one of these up. They don't list the price here. I'm guessing it's about a billion dollars. Bezos should have no problem mm. picking up one of the last V12 zero electrification. I don't think he's into cars, but if he was, he could pick up all 40 of these things.